Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. It's so good to be here with you. If you'll take like following an actual Bible, Luke chapter 2. Um, I'm going to talk to you. I want to talk about Christmas because I figured that's uh, applicable. And it's, this is the only time in my whole life I've ever been in Australia at Christmas. And so, um, and so none of Australia has ever heard uh, the stuff I do around this. And so I want to share this with you. Um, thanks for being so kind and gracious and let me be part of your weekend. And thank you for being understanding about me having to go first and then leaving. If you, if you ask anybody that knows me, I'm not a precious person. I'm not a high maintenance person. I'm actually quite a social person. Um, but when there's one flight from now till Wednesday, you got to go get that one. You, you got you, you have no, you got to get on that one or you had to drive seven and a half hours. And so, um, and so anytime you open the scripture, you want to ask a couple of questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And we're fixing to celebrate Christmas. So I figured what a good time to talk about the Christmas story from maybe a little bit different bent than you've ever heard before. So this is Luke chapter two. This is the start of the Christmas story. In the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that all the world should be taxed. In the days of Caesar Augustus. The Christmas story was not dropped into the world like a vacuum. It happened in a real place at a real moment in a real time with real suffering and real problems. The, the, the Luke account of the, of the Christmas story says it happened in the days of Caesar Augustus. I want to take the next 20 minutes or so, and I want to talk about the days of Caesar Augustus, and then I want to reread the Christmas story with that as the historical Backdrop. The days of Caesar Augustus would have been some of the worst days in the history of the world to be alive. See, they didn't believe that Caesar was just a man. They believed he was fully God in flesh. And that created a whole nother set of problems because anything Caesar did became earmarked and stamped into the highest moral preference of what it is to be an ultimate human being, which means if he was acting destructively, then it created a whole kinds of culture that honored destruction and horror and nine-layered class systems. This was the words of, of a first century Roman historian named Virgil. If you could hit that next slide for me. Virgil said that, it, that God in flesh, fully incarnate, the only way for the world to be saved was through the name of Caesar Augustus. Does that language sound familiar to anybody in here? Now, the Christmas story has a few major players. Next slide. I want to talk us through these major players because this helps us understand the Christmas story. You got Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Herod the Great, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip, and then taxes and counties. So let's walk through these quite slowly. So there was a guy named Julius Caesar. He was an amazing guy. He successfully um, in encountered and encapsulated the whole world under one rule. He also invented the salad. He was a really cool guy. He... He said, he said that um, he, was not, he was not just a man, but he was the fullness of God in flesh. Well, he got caught behind enemy lines um, in a place called Gaul, modern-day France. And his great-nephew, a guy named Octavius, saved him from behind enemy lines. And it was his, his great-nephew. And uh, he got so impressed by this that he adopted his great-nephew and said, you know what, you're no longer my great-nephew, you are my son and my heir apparent. And that guy's name was Octavius, who, who became Caesar Augustus. Here's how that happened. Julius Caesar said he was God in flesh. If you know your history, you also know that he was stabbed in the back by his best friend, this sort of, a guy named Brutus. This sort of ruined his God claims. The idea was, if you were actually God in flesh, you should have seen that coming. But because he didn't see that coming, um, he got stabbed in the back by his best friend, but it gets better than that. At his funeral, strange stars appeared in the sky. Now, we know today what it was. It was actually a comet that came so close to Earth that it lit up the day and night sky for what Roman historians say were seven days. That was probably a bit of an exaggeration. Nonetheless, if you could put yourself in a primitive world and you're standing there at the funeral of a guy that said he was God and a comet just so happens to coincidentally appear and light up the day and night sky for seven days, what would you think happened? Here's what they thought happened. That that proved that Caesar was God 
and that that star shooting across the sky was Caesar taking his seat amongst the council of the gods. So keep that in your mind, that Julius Caesar proved his godness through strange stars appearing in the sky. Now, Caesar Augustus jumps on this and he says, see, that proves that my dad was God. First of all, not his dad, his great uncle. And if my dad is God, that means I'm the son of God. And if I'm the son of God, I should be worshiped. And if I'm the son of God, I should be worshiped primarily. So Caesar Augustus instituted, instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth. And, he, and it lasted from December 19th to December 31st every year. And he called that celebration, this is true, Advent. It was called the Advent of Caesar Augustus, where the entire world was demanded to sing songs of celebration of the worthiness of Caesar Augustus being the son of God, where there is no other name on earth by which it can be saved other than the name of Caesar Augustus. We'll talk about more about that in a second. There's also a guy named Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was a king of the Judean region, and he chose Julius Caesar's side in a civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey. That was a good choice because Julius Caesar won the civil war between him and Pompey. And he awarded Herod the Great for his um, loyalty by giving him the token kingdom of all of Israel. Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and they divided the kingdom into three lots for his three sons, Archelaus, Herod Antipas and Philip. And Archelaus was given charge of the Judean region. Herod Antipas was given charge of the Galilean region. And Philip was given charge of the far north. That's why today in the far north, there's a city called Caesarea Philippi. Literally a city built for Caesar by Philip. This guy was a brown noser like you cannot believe. You had Herod Antipas in charge of the Galilean region, and you had Archelaus in charge of the Judean region. Now, Archelaus made such a mess of, Judea, of the Judean region that Caesar removed Archelaus by banishing him to, to Gaul in 22 AD and replaced him with a guy named Pilate. Yes, that Pilate. This is why at Jesus' trial, when he says, listen, you're standing in Judea, which is my jurisdiction, but I found out you're a Galilean, which is Herod's jurisdiction. We need to get Herod Antipas involved because I do not want to cross political issues. This was a real problem. Herod Antipas was called the fox. This, this is why in the book of Luke, when they said, Herod is looking for a chance to kill you, and Jesus said, you tell that fox exactly where I am, right? Pilate was known as the, as the eagle because he always had that eagle on a stick. The, the Roman Aquila, he would make people bow to it. So remember when Jesus said things like foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head? This was in-your-face political opposition, sort of, uh-uh, not on my watch. This is all in the days of Caesar Augustus. If you, you could hit that next slide for me. This is, um, this is some quick facts about what was going on in the world when God chose to reveal himself in, in Messiah in the days of Caesar Augustus. There was a, a Roman general named Germanicus. Germanicus was 50 years before Jesus, and he conquered the entire west side of the empire by slaughtering everyone of a different race who would not agree to be slaves in the days of Caesar Augustus. If you've ever had the thought, man, can you believe how bad this world is? Please have another thought. Compared to what? Read a Roman history book. This is the best the world's ever been. There was a guy named Pompey. Pompey took 12 million slaves in his illustrious career. There was a guy named Titus. Titus conquered Jerusalem and took 500 people a day as slaves. For amusement, he would nail people to crosses in their own towns just to keep his soldiers from getting bored. This is the days of Caesar Augustus. There was a guy named Cassius. Cassius enslaved 30,000 people in a region called Migdala. This is where Mary Magdalene is from. And he made a rule that all Jewish people were Roman property. It was, it was not against the law in Migdala for a Roman soldier to rape any Jewish woman with no judicial right at all. This was the days of Caesar Augustus. Of course, the most famous story from this time was a guy named Varus. There was a Roman general named Varus who was responding to a messianic revolt 
in the Galilean region. And so he shows up and he says, I'll teach these Galileans a lesson. And what he did was he crucified 2,000 people in one day in 14 AD in the city of Sepphoris. They made a movie about this in the 70s where they lined the streets from Sepphoris to Nazareth with 2,000 crosses, which leads to this question. Do Roman generals carry their own crosses around? No, they do not. What would they have to do? They would have to employ the local carpenters to make the crosses that they could put people on. And they would give the local carpenters an exemption from the crucifixion if they would make the crosses. Now, 750 meters from Sepphoris is a little town called Nazareth. That's where Jesus is from. And whose family was the local carpenters in Nazareth? Jesus's family. But they would have went to Sepphoris for work because that was the town center, which leads to this question. How many crosses do you reckon Jesus had to make before he was put on one? In the days of Caesar Augustus. If you've ever thought, in 18 AD, Varus burned Emmaus to the ground. In 21 AD, Herod Antipas went to Caesar and said, you've got to get your dog under control. He is raising the entire Galilean region and these people are going to revolt. Trust me to keep these people under wraps. Do you see now why 11 years later, when a guy is walking around Galilee going, there's a kingdom of God at hand that people were looking to throw him off a cliff. They didn't want Varus showing back up raising the thing to the ground. This was the days of Caesar Augustus. Can you see how in Luke chapter 8, when Luke says that Susanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, was helping Jesus finance his whole ministry. In other words, the CFO of Herod's entire empire, his wife took a liking to Jesus and helped fund the entire ministry of Jesus around the nation. In other words, the guy who was trying to kill Jesus was indirectly funding the entire ministry through the wife of his CFO. Can you see how when Luke wrote that, that was a way of going in your face. This is the days of Caesar Augustus. So who was ruling the Roman Empire? It was a group of people called, next slide, it was a group of people called the Caesars. So the first Caesar was Julius Caesar. He said he was God. We've already talked about that. The next Caesar was Augustus Caesar. And since his dad was God, then he is the son of God. And if he's the son of God, he should be worshipped. And he should be worshipped primarily. He instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth called Advent. We'll talk about that again in a second. Then there was Tiberius. He ruled during Jesus' earthly ministry. Next slide. Then there was Caligula. He was known for his debauchery and terror. Nero used to take Christians and he would take a wooden stick and impale them into their rectums with the goal of going through both holes at once. He would cover them in pitch and light them on fire to keep his backyard alight. The Caesars were not nice people. If you, and let me just, if I could take a second and talk to people who tend to panic about political elections. Listen, there's nothing more embarrassing to me than a group of Christians panicking about who wins elections. Just, just let me give just give you a quick history of God. He overcame the watery chaos, the Babylonian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Dark Ages, the British Empire. I think he can handle Donald Trump. I think he can handle Joe Biden, right? Like I was in Melbourne when Scott Morrison got elected. And let me be clear, I'm glad Scott Morrison got elected and it appears like he's doing a great job, okay? I'm not against Scott Morrison at all. What embarrassed me was the sheer level of panic because the day before the election, Scott Morrison was nine points down in the polls. And I had a Christian in Melbourne and they were serious, say this, Shane, what are we going to do. If labor wins, they're going to take the plaque of the Lord's prayer out of Parliament House. Well, I don't want to be Johnny Raincloud here, but if the Lord's prayer isn't at work in someone's heart, having it on a plaque on a wall isn't doing anything at all. The God we serve overcame these dudes. I think he, can, he could accomplish his purpose with Joe Biden, okay? Or Trump or ScoMo or whoever's running the, like God is not in heaven going, oh my God, what am I gonna do with the labor party? He's not gonna do that, right? There was Vespasian who, who was a Caesar who supposedly got killed by a mortal head wound and rose from the dead. This was the days of Caesar Augustus. Next slide. And then of course there was Titus. He conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. What they did, what Titus did to Jerusalem was unthinkable. You can't believe it. And then, of course, there was the famous Domitian. Domitian made it illegal to buy and sell in the Agora outside of Ephesus without taking his mark. The mark was meant to say, I pledge allegiance to Caesar being God. It was a way of economically oppressing religious zealous groups who would not proclaim Caesar as Lord and force them into underground marketplaces paying four and five times too much. 
So the Jews had a nickname for Domitian. They called him the beast who comes from land and sea. So from 78 AD to 92 AD in the Roman Empire, before you could buy and sell, you first had to take the mark of the beast. It's not in the vaccine. Quit worrying about it. And stop embarrassing me for God's sake. Next slide. Right? In Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus ruled the whole world. He was the first person ever to really, really accomplish that. Since Julius, the idea was, since Julius Caesar was God, then Augustus was the son of God, who would rule the world and should be worshipped. This is a quote from the Roman historian Virgil. He said this, that in Caesar Augustus was the incarnate divine life in flesh, the one of only salvation can come to the earth. This was the days of Caesar Augustus. His accomplishments were engraved on monuments and hung in ecclesias, churches. Here's what he did. He had his 10 mightiest deeds carved on stone tablets and hung in churches to his honor in the days of Caesar Augustus. This is another quote from the Roman historian Virgil. They called him the one who was to come in order to bring salvation, peace on earth, and goodwill to all men. Is that language sounding familiar at all? This was the days of Caesar Augustus. Virgil said in his books that they said he would establish a kingdom of peace who would free men from all fear. Have you heard that language before? In the days of Caesar Augustus. In 44 BC, a strange star, they call it Caesar's Comet today because astronomers know it was a comet that came close to Earth. They actually wrote a rock song about it in the 70s. A strange star called Caesar's Comet today appeared for seven days. The Romans accepted this as a sign of Julius's deity. This proved he was the son of God and should be worshipped. Therefore, he created a 12-day celebration of his birth, and he called that celebration Advent. This is the account of Christmas from Matthew's version in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Let's talk about this for a second, right? Who else in the Roman Empire had a special star that signified he was the Son of God? Caesar. Now, how do you get word from Spain to India that you are God in flesh? Here's what they would do. Any official government announcement they made in the Roman Empire, they put it on money. The reason is, is because money would find its way around the empire. And so your job in any community was to read your money. And if your money had a new message on it, you were supposed to call the people together and say, hey, I have a message from the government. Because in the first century, there was a problem. And that problem was because of lack of technology, they didn't know what was real news and what was fake news. Now, we don't struggle with that at all because we're very technologically sound. But back then, they struggled with what was real news and what was fake news. And you knew it was real news if it was on money. So if you're Caesar Augustus and a strange star has appeared in the sky that proves your dad was God and you're the son of God and you should be worshiped because you're the only one who can bring salvation to the earth, how would you get that message around? You would print it on money. Let me show you the coin. This is the coin that Caesar Augustus sent around the world at the time. It, it, on the left, that's the head side of the coin. And you, you don't need a degree to see that says Caesar Augustus on it. That's Caesar Augustus. On the right, you have a giant star. And around that giant star, that says in Latin, God saves. Caesar Augustus, God saves. Remember there's this one time where they were trying to trap Jesus in treason so the Romans would kill him for them, right? And they have like a first century private investigator in the reeds with like a first century video camera and he's videoing the whole thing. And they're trying to get Jesus to say something treasonous against Caesar. And they say, hey, Jesus, what do you say about paying taxes to Caesar? And remember Jesus's response? He says, um, I, don't, I don't have a coin. Anybody got a coin? Hey, I don't, I don't have a coin on me, right? And somebody goes, oh, I have a coin. And then, and then they hand him that coin. And what does Jesus say? Whose image is on the coin? And they say Caesar's, which was Jewish rabbi Kung Fu. In other words, wait a minute, you're trying to trap me in treason, but the second command is don't 
carry idols around. I'm not the one carrying the image around of a guy that says he's God. You are. If I were you, I would keep Caesar what's Caesar's and I would keep God's what's God's, which in the Greek there has this, right? There's this kind of Jewish Kung Fu going on. Now, Caesar instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth called Advent. It lasted from December 19th to December 31st. On the first day of Christmas, right? Okay, this is where this comes from. Now, what he did was, is he said, hang on, I am so important to the world that we should change the calendar to coincide with the end of my birthday and the new New Year's Day will be the last day of celebration of my birth. And they pulled this off. Of course, if you're gonna change the global calendar, who do you have to explain that to? Everyone. So, in 1908, they found an inscription outside of Prien in Ephesus explaining from the Senate why they changed the calendar. Here is the English translation of that. They declared that Caesar Augustus' birthday would become the official New Year's Day of the calendar year. Here's the inscription from Prien explaining why. Because Providence has set all things in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit all humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants. Is this language sounding familiar? That he might end war and arrange all things well, and because he, Caesar, by his appearing, surpassed all previous benefactors and leaves posterity no hope of another surpassing what he has done a name above all names. And because the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news, the gospel, for the world that came by reason of him. The word gospel or good news was a phrase used for the propagation of the imperial cult to show the whole world that Caesar is God in flesh, not anybody else. Can you see now why the gospels are on purpose using words that would irritate Rome? Oh, your guy's got a star, our guy has a star. Oh, your guy had celestial signs, our guy has celestial signs. Oh, you think your guy brought peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Our guy is actually bringing peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Oh, your guy's thing was good news? Well, if your guy's thing was good news, our God's thing is great news, right? This is not just something to read over about a baby being born in a manger. This is some in your face con confrontation to political oppression. It's like, wait a minute. If God was actually a man, he wouldn't be raping, oppressing, and pillaging 90 99% of the world to enrich the one. He'd be lifting the lowly to the level of the elite. He'd be ending the class systems. It would actually be good news. This is the days of Caesar Augustus. During Advent, Augustus offered a few things. Follow the language here and tell me if this sounds familiar. He offered forgiveness of sins and a second chance to people who would give him an offering of incense. There were Advent slogans. Like if somebody's celebrating your birthday, isn't it your right to tell them what sort of celebration song you want? Of course it is. And Caesar had a bunch of them. And there were these Advent slogans. The Advent slogans were the celebration of the birthday of the God Augustus Caesar. Here was one Advent slogan. Caesar is Lord. No other name on earth by which men can be saved. Does that sound familiar. This, the, another Advent slogan was this, Caesar is Lord. There'll be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. This is the days of Caesar Augustus. There was a great historian named Ethelbert Stauffer. Now, would you agree with me that if your mom named you Ethelbert Stauffer, you better be good at writing history because you're not going to have a lot of luck with the ladies, right? <laughs> that is just a horrible name, right? Ethelbert Stauffer wrote a great book called Christ and the Caesars, where he shows the Gospels as competing biographical narratives to the narratives of the propagation of the imperial cult of the Caesars. And here's what he said. The entire empire was quaking with the Advent slogan, Caesar is Lord. That's from Ethelbert Stauffer in Christ. In other words, no matter where you went in the empire for 12 days, you heard everybody shouting, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. There'll be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Caesar is Lord. No other name on earth by which men can be saved. Caesar is Lord in the days of Caesar Augustus. They said he'd be a multiplier of bread for all people. They put the propagation out on star coins, pe propaganda reminding people that Caesar 
was God. The Advent coins had the Advent slogans on them. Caesar is Lord, and they're giving Jesus coins to trap him. Now, what's the problem with this? The problem was is that Caesar promised something he couldn't deliver. It's an odd ethos now. I don't know of any nation on the earth that believes their leader is God other than North Korea. And it's not going well, right? When, when men think they're God, it in general doesn't go very well. But this, this, was, this wasn't a small little country called North Korea. This was the whole entire known world. And he, he, didn't, he didn't promise, he didn't, he didn't deliver what he promised. Like, like he did not rule by peace. He ruled by fear. He got his followers by forced confession. Here was their evangelism model. We're gonna show up at your town with a platoon of soldiers and you convert or you die. It was incredibly effective, right? He financed his kingdom with oppressive taxation. By one historical estimate, the people of Galilee are paying 87% taxes, 50% of their fish, 30% of their grain, 12.5% to Caesar himself just for the divine privilege of having God rule you. You had the Romans' roads taxes, the temple taxes, and the dodginess of the tax collector. These people were losing their family land that had been in their family since the book of Joshua in the days of Caesar Augustus. It was terrible. Now, what I want to do now is I want to go back and I want to read Luke chapter 2 with that as the historical backdrop. That is my best effort explaining the days of Caesar Augustus. I hope you weren't too bored. Right? Let's read the Christmas story with that as the backdrop and then ask a more profound question. So what? <laughs> what's, what's happening in me now because of it? This is what it says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a, a decree that a census should be taken to the entire wor Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own hometown to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, firstborn a son. And she wrapped her clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In other words, these people traveled days pregnant and in their own hometown, not even one of their cousins had a spare couch for them to lay on even though she was nine months pregnant. There's a story going on there. Why is this pregnant woman relegated to a barn? Even if you never met them in your life, you're not relegating a pregnant woman to a barn unless there's another story there. Different sermon, different day. Now, and there were shepherds living in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord showed round about them. And, and you know what? They were terrified. Of course they were. This is why I, I'm, I'm, I'm Larry of people who, who, who see angels all the time. I'm like, but you're not terrified. Like, what are you talking about? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For I bring you good news. Hang on, where have you heard good news before? The, pro the propagation of Caesar during Advent. I bring you good news. Wait a minute, good news. That's what you say about Caesar. I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all the people, not 1% of the people, not the upper class in the capital city, all the people. Today in the town of David, who's born? A savior. Hold on, who's the savior of the world? Caesar. This, this is a, no, 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 no. There's a new good news and he's been born and he's a savior and is, is born to you and he is Christ and he is Lord. Remember the Advent slogans? Caesar is Lord, this is not just a neat little story about somebody being born in a barn. This is an in-your-face political oppression liberation literature saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God was actually a man, he wouldn't be living like you. There's a new Lord in town. Luke is asking, who's your Lord? Matthew's asking, who's your king? That's a whole nother message as well because it was about Herod, right? This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And here's the line. And on earth, peace and goodwill to all men. Now, what do we do with this? Like, so what? Well, I would say, I hope that I'm bringing some level of awareness to what the history underneath the Christmas story is. So that at some point in this Christmas season, when you're singing the Christmas songs, that this, this lesson comes to our mind. Like, hark the herald angels sing, 
glory to the newborn king. This wasn't, this wasn't about, oh, finally we get to go to heaven when we die. No, no, no. This was about, wait a minute, there's a way to be made to bring heaven here. Like, like, like the next time you sing that song, oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. He's the Christ. He's the Christ. He is Lord. May we never sing that mindlessly ever again because whoever we enthrone is where the throne gets built. And the Christmas story is about which narrative is your life gonna show? Is our life showing the narrative of Caesar or the narrative of the slain lamb? The one who sits above the world and judges it or the one who enters into the broken story and suffers with it? Which narrative is our life going to show? Because there's, next slide. There's always the way to live like Augustus, or there's a way to run our life like Christ. Augustus ruled with violence. He showed up in your town with soldiers. You converted or died. Jesus ruled with peace and consent. Jesus makes the first move in consent and then humbly waits for your consent. Augustus's relationships were forced. Jesus's were consensual. Augustus was willful. Jesus was willing. Those are two different things. Augustus ruled by ruling. I'm coming in my way or the highway. Jesus ruled by serving. There's two ways that you can run your business. You can rule, you can serve. There's two ways to be a husband. You could do it with violence or with peace. There's two ways to be a wife. You could do it with violence. If mama ain't happy, the whole house ain't happy. Of course, your husband's gonna pray for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. <laughs> or there's a way you can bring peace in heaven to your home. There's two ways to be a boss. There's two ways to be a neighbor. There's two ways to run your ministry team. You could rule or you could serve. Your life can tell the narrative of Caesar or the narrative of the lamb. Uh, of course, Augustus is dead and our guy is alive. There's two ways to run your life. Let's say it this way, next slide. What does this mean for us? It means that Jesus is Lord and he gets the last word. That Caesar doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Anger doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. My question is, is if you could name the Caesar in your life, the thing that forces you to bow, what would that Caesar be? And the Christmas story is about the Caesars in our life never getting the last word, Jesus does. Lies don't get the last word, Jesus does. Unforgiveness doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Feeling disheartened doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Cancer doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Pain doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Greed doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Shame doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Divorce, that never gets the last word, Jesus does. Failure doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. Cruelty never gets the last word, Jesus does. It's, it's, a, it's not a message primarily about a cute baby in a barn and a way to heaven. It's about the invasion of God into a broken story in order to make a better narrative for our life and theirs. That's Christmas. So when we sing, oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. These things get disenthroned and Jesus gets enthroned. Now, good sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. Of course, there's nothing to disagree in this, but well, whatever. Good sermons are meant to be wrestled with. So, so let's wrestle for a second. One, what's oppressing you? Can we take a second, not out loud, can we name it? I'm scared to death of this. My 26-year-old's off the rails and fears grip my life. I've done everything I could do to keep that client and it looks like they might be going somewhere else. This thing, I can't get over it. What's a, what if, if, if you were to name the thing that Caesar showed up in your town and said, you're going to bow, sing whatever song you want, but you're bowing. What's that? What's oppressing you? Next one. Is Jesus Lord or is the oppressor Lord? I think another question we should ask is this. Is there anybody we're oppressing? Is there anybody that because we're acting like Caesar, we might be saying God, Jesus, Bible, scripture, truth, but when we look at our life, it looks like Caesar. We're just, the church has a great theology for how to handle certain overt behaviors, but they have no real theology on how to handle a jerk. But, but, there's no, but there's no place for being a jerk in the kingdoms of this Christ. There's no place for being hard on people or being cruel. 
That, that means our life is just telling the narrative of Caesar yeah. instead of the narrative of Christ. Christmas is about the empowerment to tell a different narrative. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one last way we can remember this is if your life was printed on a coin, what would your coin say? If, your, if the coin of your life was being passed around to your neighbors, what would it say? Would it say anger is Lord or Jesus is? Would it say lies are Lord or Jesus is? Would it say being a jerk is Lord or Caesar or Jesus is? Would it say violence is the way to live or would it say Jesus is? If, if, you're, if the only thing your neighbor ever knew about God was you, what would your neighbor say about God? If I asked your seven-year-old, if God is like mommy, what is God like? What would the seven-year-old say? Well, God must think dad's an idiot. Hmm. If I asked your seven-year-old, if God is like daddy, what would God be like? What would he say? What would she say? Would she say, man, he loves me and he's fun? Or, or, or would she or he say, he's never around and when he is, he's quiet and sort of isolated? If, if, we were to, if, if the message of God was on the coins of our life and that coin got passed around, what would it say? See, this is Christmas. Christmas isn't simply about the magic of Jesus being born in a barn. Christmas is about the challenge of whether our behavior or lack of behavior is telling the narrative of Caesar or the narrative of the Lamb. In the days of Caesar, Augustus, came a new savior. He's the Christ, he's the Christ, and he is Lord. And may our life scream that narrative. Merry Christmas, everybody. Grace and peace. I got it. I got it, Becky. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much, Shane. Brilliant. Um, we're going to continue the conversation. We're going to just hook straight in. Uh, text your questions to the number on the screen, and we're just going to go until Shane has to go. So um, I'll just get a question to open us up. Uh, Katie, can you put the slide with the number on the screen, please? And um, just that historical context was incredible. I'm just wondering, what would we say to our friends if they said, we'll see... Um, the story was just stolen. That story was around already and Christians just took it. How could we answer that? Um, well, you would say, obviously, if... Well, you wouldn't have to say anything, but you, you, what I would say is, is I would say it was very common practice in an ancient history genre where meaning, not detail, trumped the day. For you, if your goal was to tell the whole world a certain narrative around the meaning of Christ, you would use common archetypes and images that were already present in the whole world instead of making up fresh ones. It just makes sense that it would save you decades of time. If you're like, well, you know, hey, a savior for the whole world, peace on earth and goodwill. Since you guys already have that, we'll just grab that because the truth of it is, is that if you're honest about what Caesar promised versus what he delivered, there's a big giant gap. And, and that's what makes Christ special. Brilliant. Um, okay, so if you just want to text in, I'll ask as you um, text in. Another one is historical context. You just gave that incredibly. You expanded that just massively. Um, if we don't know what it is... Can we still get it as we read scripture? If we don't have the historical context, can we still get it? And also, how do we get it? How can we gain it? Well, you can get it, but, the, but, the, but it always helps to have somebody knows what they're talking about. And it, it's also part of, of healthy living to discipline our lives to only get content from reputable sources. Like the, the problem with the internet, and I love the internet, like, like I like Netflix, right? And, and honestly... 400 years ago, they disemboweled the village betrayer on Friday night for Friday night entertainment. Um, now we get Netflix. Is Netflix perfect? No, it's better than disemboweling people, though. Um, and so I love the Internet. The problem with the Internet is 25 years ago, if you had a question, say, about medicine, who did you have to ask? A doctor. You probably had to make an appointment and go sit with someone that went to seven years of school, four years of supervised training, and did three years of research to ask a question about medicine. Because of the internet, you can be Melissa, the leader of the 
preschool mother's group in Armadale, <laughs> and you could be online vitriolically and give some sort of opinion that gets around the place. And, um, and so the same is true with, with biblical studies. It is very important that you discipline yourself to only, only get information from reputable people. Whether you agree or not doesn't matter, but that they're reputable. Like, like if, you, if somebody said, you know, where did these people make all this stuff from the book of Revelation up? I said, they just made it up. But, but like the stuff I talked about with the Mark of the Beast and stuff, this is written in like David De Silva's book, Unholy Allegiances, N.T. Wright's book, um, Revelation for the Everyman. It's written in uh, Eugene Peterson's book, Reverse Thunder. These are Ph.D. level theologians who have studied ancient documents their whole life. These are who you want to read. That's, that's who, that, that's who you, want, you want to read. And so, and so the, the, the Christmas stuff, there's a great history book about the history of Christmas called, um, it's called The Liberation of Christmas by Richard Horsley. And, uh, or you could read Poet and Peasant by Kenneth Bailey um, or Christ and the Caesars by Ethelbert Stolfer. But these, these, things, the, these things help us help us do that. Or you could just take my word for it. Yeah, one of the two. Yeah. Um, Romans 13 talks about... Um, Governing, submitting to governing authorities and, uh, you know, coming underneath them, etc. Um, why do you think Jesus was so in your face, like a, a, in, in that confrontational way, when then Paul goes on to say, submit yourself? Well, words matter less than how we picture words functioning. So obviously the way Jesus handled himself was in some way submitting to the, like you never saw Jesus stirring up an uprising. That's what they accused him of and that's why they killed him. But he went, and remember even Pilate's like, I don't see an uprising anywhere. I don't see any reason to charge him with being a rabble rouser. Um, but Jesus called out the corrupt systems that were being empowered by the religious elite to hold down the poor and the afflicted. Um, so obviously, the way Jesus carried himself was, was honoring of government. Like, remember when Pilate said, are you the new king? And, Pilate, and Jesus goes, this is your court. I am who you say I am. Right? That's, that's the ultimate in, I'm going to stay silent before my accusers and yeah. see what happens. And so, and so is it important to, to, and remember when Paul wrote that, Nero was in charge, who was in, in a lot of ways worse than Caesar Augustus. And so we can, and Peter wrote something similar when Nero was in charge. And so, you know, I, I, would, just, you, I would just say that again, that, that if, if God can accomplish his purposes when Nero's in charge, he can handle the labor government, the liberal government, the LNP, the Republicans, the Democrats. Now, you imagine if Paul woke up today in America in 2020 and he said, this is different. <laughs> Who's the guy in charge? Oh, his name's Joe Biden. Oh, is he claiming to be God? No, he's actually a practicing Catholic. What's Catholic? Worshippers of Christ. So the guy in charge of the whole world is a worshiper of Christ? Yes. And that's legal now? Yes. And no one's being impaled and set on fire? No. <laughs> Paul would have been like, has heaven come to earth? <laughs> Christians complain about that, but perspective is perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter was crucified upside down. <laughs> Paul was killed horrendously under the authority of Nero. And, um, and so I would say that above all things, if, if it's ever... I don't think there's an excuse not to be honoring to the people in government. Yeah. Uh, they, um, this is, it's a relatively new thing, you know, to... Um, in 1820, there was one democracy in the whole world. Now most of the world is, dem is democratic, which means for the first time in the history of the world, the common man has a say in government. That's awesome. And, and it shouldn't surprise us that what come along with that was in 1820, only 12% of the world can read. Now only 12% of the world can't. Like, is it easy to find a problem here or there? Yes, it is. It's also easy to step back and look at all the good that's come because of the work of the Spirit of Christ in this world. And the truth of it is, is that largely those big actions come through government. Yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. Um, maybe this person's um, wrestling with a bit of guilt, Shane. How do you dispel guilt about sin? and live to love people in your daily life like Jesus? Well, those are two questions. I think the answer to the questions is in the second part, is that, is that sin management doesn't work because sin management depends on forbiddance as the fuel. But that's like trying to fight a fire with sparks. Like, forbiddance is the fuel 
that gives sin its power. So to try to manage sin with forbiddance is like trying to fight a fire with a hose with sparks in it. It just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work. The, the way to overcome the guilt of sin is to step back and go, hang on a second. And, and you know, it shouldn't surprise us that people in the church struggle with guilt around sin. Because we tell everybody you're born basically wicked and Jesus died to fix your basic badness, right? And it, oh, and then you go, if you ask one question, how do you do that? He allowed himself to be tortured by his dad who couldn't forgive us without torturing him, right? Which is just insane. That, 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 that'd be like me going, look, um, I've hurt you. Uh, I'm so sorry, I hurt you. Um, would you please forgive me, you know? And you go, sure. But I am gonna go beat the stew out of my son. And I go, no, don't do that. Just, just forgive me for free. And you go, I can't. Somebody's got to get beaten for me to forgive you. Well, if she actually did that, what would we call her? A lunatic, right? But that's sometimes the primary image we give people of God, that a God that tells us to forgive for free turns out he can't without torturing someone. Jesus did not die to fix our basic badness. Jesus died to call us back to our basic goodness that God originally created us to. God was not torturing Jesus in our place. That is ridiculous. Jesus did not die to save us from an angry God. God was in Christ reconciling the whole thing to himself. And so when you tell people their whole life, you're basically bad, Jesus fixed your basic badness, it can't surprise us that at times we default back to the thought that we're basically bad. But we're not. We're, we're basically good, and we're being called back to embrace that original goodness that the, that the, the, the taints of badness came in and sort of tainted. Um, some Christians argue about the validity of the 25th of December. Um, so what can we say to those who think Christmas is not the valid date of Jesus' birth? It was a pagan worship day, so we shouldn't worship Jesus and celebrate his birth on that day. Um, that's boring. <laughs> that, is, that is really boring. Um, I just have nothing else. That is... That, <laughs> That is, that is literally too boring to... If somebody, if somebody came to me and said, I don't think December 25th is Jesus' actual birthday, therefore we shouldn't worship Jesus on the birthday, I would first think that they'd miss the entire point. And second, I would go, you might be the most boring person I've ever met. I, I would think... I have no words for how bored I would be <laughs> trying to have a conversation with somebody that was making an issue of that. Okay. That Not right or wrong, I just think... <laughs> They, they, can, no, they can try that. They can try that yeah. on that person. That's I great. mean, what are the chances December 25th is actually Jesus' birthday? There's a 1 in 365 chance. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, that's completely not the point. <laughs> that's what I would say. They, they can try that. Out. Here's what you, you can do. Boring. If somebody says that to you, just sort of stare off into space. <laughs> and don't say anything. And then when they say, what do you reckon? Just say, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just so bored. I couldn't cope. <laughs> And because and, and, people don't mind being right and they don't mind being wrong because they can argue, but no one wants to be boring. <laughs> I, say, I use that one all the time. I just, oh, I'm just so bored I can't cope. Yeah. He did use that on me at lunch. Uh, did I? No, no. no. I'm super interesting. Um, okay. If you feel like you don't um, feel like you know the full historic context, or you, should you feel inadequate or hold back to share to other people about God and the no, Bible? No, no, no. Like, like okay. Like, please, like, do you do realize that the access, for two things to be true, the access and the literacy rates to read it, that the Bible is relatively a new phenomenon. For the first 385 years of church history, they didn't have a Bible. Do you know why? It wasn't legal. So Constantine made it legal, and then in 323, they had a council that put the Bible together, and then in 385, they had a second council that finalized it. So how did God accomplish his purposes for the first 385 years with no Bible? What did he do? I don't know. He empowered a group of people with the Holy Spirit to live in love and compassion and show his love and compassion in the world, and somehow that was enough. Then you had a problem. There was no printing press to the 1400s. Then you had a problem that even up to 1820, only 12% of people could read it. The availability of the printing press and the availability to read the Bible is only in the last 100 years. 
My, anybody old enough to remember your family having one family Bible that was gigantic and on the coffee table? Why would you have a gigantic Bible on your coffee table? It's not a great centerpiece. Why? It's because you couldn't afford more than one copy and the whole family shared the one Bible. Now we have 20 different versions on our phone. It's not like that's always happened. Somehow, for the first 1,900 years of church history, God accomplished his purposes when most people couldn't have access nor read a Bible. So are you inadequate if you don't know the whole story? No, none of us do. We haven't, any of us scratched more than one-tenth of one percent of what God is. Just keep telling the story. Beautiful. Okay, I'm going to quickly give you the question, and then in the last one minute you can um, tell us. Um, You talked about the Caesar um, that's oppressing us or that we're bowing to. Um, Can you give us an example of how to overcome that, to not bow down to it, maybe something that you've practiced in your own life? Yes, so what you give attention will get power. As a matter of fact, the ancient Hebrew word for iniquity, um, ancient Hebrew letters are pictures. And so every Hebrew letter is a picture, so every Hebrew word is a comic strip. The ancient Hebrew word for iniquity is the word Avon, like the makeup company, right? Like your, your grandmother told you to wear makeup was a sin. She told you, you know. Um, but the word Avon in the pictures, the A is an eyeball, the V is a hook, and the N is fish multiplying. And so when an ancient Hebrew person read the word iniquity, what they read was, was whatever your eye hooks to multiplies, right? So whatever gets your attention gets big. The, 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 in the ancient Hebrew world, they, they used the word enthronement. Um, in, in the Psalms, it says the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. In Hebrew, it says when the people worship, God builds a throne. This is an old song. Remember, this is probably in the 80s, maybe. And as we worship, build a throne. And as we worship, build a throne. Come, Lord Jesus, and take your place. That's a pretty, that's a pretty, uh, that's, a, that's a, a historically and culturally correct concept. So the idea is, is that with whatever's in our life that's oppressing us, it, it tends to get a throne built because it has all of our attention. Yeah, 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 yeah. What you can't do is fight Caesar. You'll die. Huh, if you fight sin, sin will overcome you. You cannot beat sin by fighting it. You have to beat sin by replacing it with something more pleasurable. You have to use your brain and the way your brain is pre-wired by God for you to embrace pleasure and avoid pain. If your brain knows something's going to bring pain, you will avoid it. Like if I had a hot plate here and I said, this hot plate is 500 degrees, I'll give you $10,000 to put your hand on. Somebody might do it. You might have some crazy young person who's broke going... (laughs) But what, what would they have to do? They would have to psych themselves out. Mm. What's the root word of psych yourself out? To lose your mind. Okay. You have to tell your brain that it's not going to hurt as bad as the $10,000 is going to feel pleasurably. Mm-hmm. And so you don't beat sin by fighting sin. You beat sin by replacing it with something with better pleasure. Mm-hmm. You beat sin by telling the truth about it that that causes pain. It's not that God doesn't like you. It's not any God I think God has neutral feelings about it. At at least he has positive feelings for you. And he wants you to overcome that, not because he needs to like you more, but because he wants your life to be good, right? But the the truth of it is, is that the way to be, if you fight sin, you only make yourself aware of the sin. When you you replace it with something more pleasurable, um, then your brain takes over and becomes much easier to deal with. Mm. And so, and all that takes place in a disciplined imagination to build pictures that tell the truth in our life. So... I hope Jesus got bigger for you today. The cross worked better. The resurrection of central scriptures got bigger, not smaller. And I hope the Christmas story just got huge. Yeah, so when you sing, oh, come let us adore him, never sing it mindlessly again. Take that time and build that throne. Awesome. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Grace and peace. Hey again. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.